So I need to give you a couple youth ministry moments to help set the mood for Job 38, but it's going to be one that leaves you wrestling a little bit. If you've noticed, that's a bit of a trend in Job. There are two moments that come out of a nickname that I've gotten as a youth pastor, which is a drill sergeant. That's not all the time. might feel like it sometimes, but it really isn't. Uh, We like to have a lot of fun in the youth ministries. That's never our goal. Uh, We want to have fun because God's amazing, but that's never the, the purpose is just to have fun. But I am loud, and I can be direct and loud, and so we picked up Uh, The title, Drill Sergeant, especially out of a different funny moment, you'll have to ask me about that one when I was shouting what I used to say, and it it became, that was a fun voice crack, by the way, but it became a little bit weird when I said it that way, and I realized we need to come up with a different name for this. But let me give you two. One is exactly what you think of as a drill sergeant, angry. Never been in the military, but I have that picture. Those of you who have been in the military, I'm sure, have even more detailed pictures. But there was a a Tuesday night. I don't even remember the details of what was going on, but we were in Grace Hall, uh, not over in the Ed Building, and it it may have been before the Ed Building even popped up, but I think it was right after we got into the Ed Building. But we were in Grace Hall. We were hanging out in the gym, and we had just for fun, but also to be a blessing to the kids, we had ordered pizza. But we had never, as best as I can remember, told them that they were getting pizza. Pizza was a surprise. But I was surprised. If you've been around me when we order pizza, by the way, I, among many things, am a professional pizza orderer. Uh, I, I do it pretty well. But I always plan on having extra. But we were surprised by, I think it was 40 guys that night. We had an abundance of guys from where we were at at the moment. There were a bunch of high school young men in particular, some junior high young men as well. But they were all in Grace Hall, and they did not know that pizza was coming. You need to understand that. But when they found out that pizza was on the table, they immediately went into teenage mode for a high school boy with pizza around, which is ravenous. But I only had 40 slices. Well, no, I didn't even have that. I think I had 25 slices of pizza. It would be 24. However many pizzas we got, it was one of the few times I didn't have enough So I'm in the kitchen with a roller as whatever was going on with the youth ministries. They're all waiting for the pizza they never expected, but were starving for all of a sudden. I'm slicing it up into these little baby pieces so that everybody gets one. And I have this endless barrage of young men coming at me demanding their pizza, the pizza they didn't expect 20 minutes ago. But it's taking too long, and they want it now. You can go to Willy Wonka. I want it now. It's a song. That's exactly what was going on. And I finally got fed up. I stopped cutting the pizza up. I walked into Grace Hall, and I drill sergeant moted them and just not inappropriately shouted, I don't believe, and I think my staff on that night backed me up on that. But I laid into them to the point of going football coach mode too and said, take a knee and shut up. My apologies for the S word. In our house, that was the S word growing up. You were not allowed allowed to say it, but it was highly entertaining when the kids would tattletale on each other, walk up and say, so-and-so said the S word. You're like, which word are we talking about? But, and they said, they told me to shut up. You're like, it's only a bad word in our house. But I'm like, take a knee. And they they all look at me because they had never heard that from my mouth ever before. I never went that mode on. I'm like, 
You've, and then I laid in on them for being offended that I had said, take a knee and shut up. I said, you hear that from your coaches all the time. They actually don't, by the way. They don't know what to do with that anymore. That's an old way to coach. Some coaches still hold on to it. But I'm like, no, seriously, take a knee, zip your mouth. And then I laid out, you didn't know pizza was coming. And there are more of you than slices of pizza. You're going to get pizza, not as much as you want. We can't fix this problem any other way than to cut it down and shrink it down. You get a little sliver of pizza that you didn't know you were getting. So just be happy. None of them were happy. It didn't work, but that was full drill sergeant mode. They were all angry, then they were grumpy, then they were offended, then they were sad, and then they ate the slice of pizza. I, I want to say maybe two of them apologized when they realized they were totally out of line for getting offended that they got less pizza than they didn't expect. It was the weirdest moment, crazy moment. That one, I was angry. Drill sergeant mode and angry. The other one, though, I was talking with, and I've talked about him before, talking with one of our staff people who lives down in L.A. now. His name's Cody. And Cody and I would have long conversations on the bus, partly to make sure that I was alert while I was driving, because if you're talking, you're usually, you're usually awake, at least. But driving, and we're having these fun conversations. But one of them we would have is about group dynamics and the fact that if I walk up to a group partly because I've conditioned them this way, but partly because a group of teenagers is not always paying attention. They're always wonderful and amazing, but they're not always listening. If I walk up to them and just give them a gentle order and say, hey, why don't you go take your sleeping bags and put them on your bunk like we all know needs to happen right now, nobody moves, not a single soul. They just stand there as if they don't know what to do when we get off of the bus and we're at camp or somewhere else. So I'm talking to Cody, we've been talking about it, driving down to L.A., we're staying at my family's church down there for the night on the way to the missions trip, and I go to him and I say, watch, Cody, there's 50 kids over there. I'm going to walk up and give them all clear, simple, quiet instructions and watch what happens. And I go up to them and I tell them exactly what to do, and then I walk over to the, to, back to him and we watch for five minutes as everybody stands there. They actually then started asking me questions about the instructions I had just given them as if I hadn't said anything and continued to stand there. There's a trailer. The doors are open. There's all this luggage. There's an upstairs that we're going to. This is like the fifth year in a row that we've done this event in this way. The veterans all know what to happen. They're standing around, and they're all puzzled as to why nobody's moving. And the answer is they didn't listen, and they haven't moved. But I told them what to do. And then finally, just to save everybody, because I didn't want to want a forever night that night, I drill sergeant barked out instructions. Everybody grab your stuff and take it upstairs. And they immediately started moving. It was much louder than that, by the way. We were across the field. I wanted to make sure everybody heard me. But catch this. Unlike the other moment, I wasn't mad. I was just loud and direct. Question for you going into Job 38. Is God mad, or is he just direct and powerful? Because it's easy to think he's mad at Job, but I don't think he is. He is certainly powerful. Chapter 38 to 41 is maybe the most powerful God-speaking moment in Scripture, although there certainly would be a bunch of contenders for that. But I think we read God's anger into it. I don't think he's mad. He's direct. And there's some words that I can see where we get to mad. But I think the tone of Job at the beginning, and I think also we'll get there eventually at the end, 
make it clear he's not mad at Job. But Job needs God in power. Even if Job thinks he needs God in a different way, what he needs is God's omnipotence, not just God's presence. And he gets it. But because we, like that room of teenage boys sometimes, have different expectations, when God shows up in power in these chapters, I think we miss it a little bit. I think we miss it a little bit. Here we go. There's a lot of scripture that you're going to hear today. At one point, I'm just going to read straight through, but we got to set up because Job, the book of Job does set up God's answer. And it starts in Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord, all caps, that means Yahweh. Then the Lord, then Yahweh, answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, he's about to speak. We're going to pause there, though. Yahweh answered. Remember last week, Job says, let the Almighty answer. Job 38 through 41 is a double response. God, God has two different responses. We're going to break it up into two Sundays. But it says he answered. The book of Job is pointing out that God was listening and that he cared to answer. And then his answer points out how much he wasn't listening and how much he is mindful of Job. Remember, that was one of Job's complaints too. God, why are you so mindful of me? And what God's going to state throughout Job 38 and 39, his first response, and also in the rest of it in 40 and 41 is, Job, I'm not just mindful of you. I'm mindful of everything because if I wasn't, the whole world would devolve. The whole world would fall into chaos. It'd be Genesis 6, right before the flood. And really, this dawned on me this morning, I think, what we see in Job 1 and 2 is one little glimpse of real-time Job, I'm sorry, real-time Genesis 3, the fall, the curse. Look at what happens to Job. He loses his stuff, the 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 produce of his labor, his hard work, it becomes toil, and he loses it all. He loses his kids. What happens at the fall? Death enters the world. This one, too, I've never heard anybody say this, but I was thinking of it. You can wrestle with this, take all kinds of salt with this that you want to, but ladies, you are in a unique position to, to answer this. When it says the pains of labor are increased, this dawned on me this morning, you're never supposed to live without your child. It's not just that parents aren't supposed to outlive their children. It's that you are never meant to ever again live without them pre-fall. We were made for there to be no death, and that means moms never are separated with their kids either way. But that's something that plays out in Job. That's partly why in Job 2, his wife's struggling too, and we do need to remember that. She gives him wrong advice, but she is a mom that's lost her kids. And in a perfect world, moms never lose their kids. Job 1 and 2 is just real-time curse instead of the life we have and enjoy now, which is a grace of God that it is time delay curse. It's like when we take a pill and it plays out over 24 hours instead of immediate dose. We have the effects of the fall slowed down over a lifetime and over history. And Job gets it all in one shot. 
but God answers him. But to counter that, Job 1 and 2, he needs God's power. And God responds with, I'm listening and I'll answer. The Almighty is going to speak. He says, I've been listening the whole time. And my power, that mindfulness, is what you're about to hear. Because I'm absolutely mindful over the entire world, including you, Job. Verse 2 and 3. This is why we might rightly think God's angry. It's something we've got to wrestle through, but you have to take all of Job. But verse 2 and 3. Who is this that darkens by counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's powerful and direct, for sure. Is it angry? You've got to wrestle with that. That's the difficulty of the book of Job. But listen to how God responds over the whole thing and at the end and how Job, the book, describes Job the man at the beginning. You've got to wrestle with it some. But he says this, who's darkening counsel? Okay, that's a good indication that Job spoke wrongly, but not necessarily sinfully, by the way. That's, again, something you've got to wrestle with. But who darkens counsel? And then he says, it really is gird up your loins, but dress for action. Let's go. You wanted this moment, Job. The Almighty answers, let's go. Are you ready? I'll now question you. I'll now question you, but before you just condemn Job, even for this statement, look at how the whole book talks about him, including the end. And I hope some of you are familiar with it enough to know in 42 how Job responds. We'll get to that, and it might not be exactly what you think. That's a cool section. We'll get to that in two weeks, but that's a cool section. Then in verse 4, I'm going to read 4 all the way through 39, and then we're going to come back to it, okay? So I'm going to read a lot right now. Hang with me. Follow along on the screens or in your own Bible, on your Bible app. This is God's first answer, part one of, of two. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddly band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended, comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. 
Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters became hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of, of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey? When its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill, and do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who's let the wild donkey go free? Who's loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I've given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave him to your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in its strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? 
Is it at your command that the eagles mount, eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home on the rocky crag and the stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. It's a powerful response. And there's certainly challenge in it. You could argue, and you might be right, that there's rebuke in it. He's putting Job in his place, but that's not always a bad thing when we get put in our place, especially when that place is in the protective hand of God. The mindful watch of God as he rules over the entire planet. There's a lot that goes on in that response. What's obvious is it's an ear-catching response. It starts in verse 4. It says, where am I? That goes back to, I believe it's chapter 23 and 24. But he says, where am I? That's the question we ask in the problem of pain. God, where are you? God's response to Job is, where were you? He's not saying it's a wrong question to ask, by the way. Please don't misunderstand me, and I don't think we're supposed to misunderstand God that way. But his answer isn't so much to declare to Job where he is at, although that's certainly in it. I'm all of these places. His answer starts with, Job, you tell me first. Where were you when I was watching over the planet for history past, before you were born? That life that you lamented before, the one where I declared that your existence mattered and needed to be in this world to make this world what I want it to be. Where were you? Most of us would not be okay with that answer from God. Lord, I'm in the hospital bed and I'm struggling. Where are you? And if God actually knocked on the door, walked in and said, let me ask you this. Where were you yesterday before you got into the hospital because I was here with the other hurting patients? That's part of his response. He says it in a different way. But we're not usually ready for that. When we cry out, where are you? We want God to come in and say, I'm holding your hand, which is true. I'm holding your hand. He declares that throughout Scripture. Go to Psalm 23 anytime you're struggling with that. Go to the tear, soul, tear collector psalm anytime you're struggling with that. But sometimes when we cry out to God, especially when there's some defiance in it, and we say, where were you? God needs to respond back with, let's restart with where were you when I was around for all of eternity past. I spoke light into existence. Where were you when it was dark before that? That's right. You weren't born yet, but I still was. We need, certainly need to hear that. That's verse 4. Verse 10, though, he says, Job, you're forgetting or you're not thinking of, I'm the one that prescribes limits. I'm the one that holds the world in my hands. I'm the one that contains it. I keep it from going wrong all the time, and you take it for granted. And that's okay because you're the creation. And I'm the creator. But in this moment, you need to be reminded of it. I prescribe the limits. I am the God that is over the physical world and not bound by it. I'm the only God, and I'm the one that gives you breath today. I place the limits on this physical world. Verse 17 mentions the gates of death. And he's saying, 
I hold death in my hands. You beg for death, and I'm not granting it because it's not your time. I hold death in my hands. It also means I hold life in my hands. I am the one that declares the lifespans. And this problem of evil make us question God's timing and purpose and everything in that. And we have to go back to the answer to the problem of evil. This is playing out because of our sin. God is not culpable, but he is still sovereign over it and controlling it. Even when we don't understand his timing or that control, it is still there. And he pushes back. Job, do you hold the gates? You've been begging for death. Do you hold those in your hands? You don't. I do. Verse 21. We need, to, we need to wrestle with his words a little bit here. It's an interesting statement because he's, he's starting to mock a little bit. God is. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. That might make you uncomfortable if you really read it and understand it. Is, is God really poking Job, who's already been poked nearly to death and yet not to death. He's not being cruel here. He's reminding him of which is creator and which is created. But he might be making you a little uncomfortable with his answer. When he says, your days are a massive amount of days. But they aren't. And Job knows that. I don't think God's being cruel there. Please don't lay that at his feet. We would have greater theological problems if God's cruel. But that doesn't mean he's uncomfortable poking us when we start a wrestling match with him. Verse 22, I think this is another one that it might make you a little bit uncomfortable. It sounds like he's drifting into a similar thing to the friend that said and was, was pushing back at Job by saying it's his fault that his kids died. But this is different. First, it doesn't address his kids. That would be a whole other level of pain. But it does address toil and work and losses which any successful businessman would be familiar with. He says, Job, you were a rich man. He's, he's also not poking at the pain. He's just referencing something he knows. You had storehouses of goods and, and riches. So you understand this. I didn't have storehouses of perishable things. I have storehouses for nature, for the elements. It's figurative language Almost certainly, it's not just being unscientific. He's making an artistic point. He says, Job, I have storehouses for the hail. The hail that you're worried about would ruin your crops. I keep it in barns. That's how powerful I am. I bring the rain out from the water tanks in heaven when I feel like it, when it suits my time. That's what I have stockpiled. You're a man formerly of riches, but who understands this. You had storehouses, and let me talk about heavenly storehouses. It's an interesting statement. He's not being cruel. He is calling on something that Job would understand and reminding him that God is just fine and the world is still under his control. But then he goes to one, and I've been pointing this out along the way, but it's beautiful. It lets you know how closely God was listening. In 31 through 33, and he brings up the constellations that Job mentioned. But he does it in a powerful way. 
He says, Job, you mentioned Orion. Let's talk about Orion. Are you the one that loosens his belt? Interesting thing. I am not an astronomer, by the way. I always have to think through which word is it, astronomer, astrology. I'll come back to that in a moment. But I'm not an astronomer. I'm not great at stars. But if I remember right, my understanding is, and when I've looked it up, Orion's belt actually is growing. He's like every other soldier in in the history of the world. As he gets older, his belt has to loosen a little bit. And God references that before they understood it. But those stars, at least from our perspective, are starting to spread ever so slowly and throughout our history, but in a noticeable way. And God references it. You brought up Orion. Let me tell you, I'm the one that controls his belt. I loosen his belt. My hand is so involved in all of creation, including the stars, that I'm the one that adds another notch for him to loosen his belt on. The Pleiades, it's a constellation, and it kind of goes across the sky, but it's one that could be spreading apart like Orion's belt, but instead what we see is it's staying, it's flying in tight formation. And God says, Job, are you the one that holds it in that formation? Because I am. I'm holding the stars together. The Maseroth. We don't entirely know what this one, this one was. Maybe it's a constellation they had. Maybe it's a reference, actually, to all the constellations. And then the fun one, it throws in there the mama bear and her kid, kids. So it's a major. It's a cool reference. Little side, by the way, just because I brought it up. Astronomy versus astrology. Astronomy, be amazed at God's creation. Astrology, don't mess with it. There's either zero to it, which means it's a waste of your time, or there is something to it, which means it's something to be avoided. And scripture warns us from it. Don't get involved in it. Verse 41, though, this one doesn't normally jump out to me, but it did this time. A lot of what God's doing is on a massive scale and powerful. And in verse 41, he mentions the raven babies, the chicks. He says, one, I take care of even the the crow's kids. The ones that we get annoyed at. I don't know if Job and his, his friends did, but most of the time, if you hear a crow, you're like, ah, oh, just be quiet and go away. Maybe some of you love it. You don't need to email me. You can just call me names in your head. But God says, not only do I take care of them, but the second one, did you catch it? When they're crying out. When they're crying. It's pretty cool. You get this little picture of creation worshiping God. We get glimpses of that from, in Scripture, and it's amazing. But then one more before we get to chapter 40 where it wraps up this part of the answer. One more thing. If you're in a different translation, you heard a different word. This one is mostly for fun. This is for my junior high students in the crowd because they love facts like this. In Job 39, verse 9 through 12, if you're reading the King James Version, it doesn't say a wild ox. It says a unicorn. I think it's nine times in the King James it translates an animal as a unicorn. That's a fun fact. So the King James is the unicorn translation, at least if you have the authorized version and you go back, New King James might not have it. But it's, here it's a wild ox. We don't really know what kind of ox it is, though. 
and why they transited unicorn, I don't know. But my, I've heard, used this before. My favorite commentary series, New American Commentary, uh, on page 185, it pointed this out. Not only does it say unicorn, but in the notes somewhere um, in the King James, it says this, and I love this one. It has rhinoceros. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Picture that thought for a minute because that might be what God is saying here. Is Job, do you put a yoke on the rhinoceros and have it till your field? And immediately, because I'm a product of our moment in history, I thought of Black Panther, the Marvel movie, where you actually see this. They use them for war, but they also have a rhinoceros pinned up in the first movie, and it looks like a beast of burden. And Job, God speaking to Job says, Job, are you powerful enough to make the rhino a cow to plow the field? And if you did, if you had the guts to put two rhinoceroses, however you say it, rhinoceri, I don't even know what the right answer is. I just know I used them both. But two of them together under one yoke, would you expect that to come back to you? Do you think it would plow the field the way, or do you think you'd just die? We don't mess with rhinos. Well, some people do, and they find out that you don't mess with a rhino. We just let them exist. Y'all just be fine over there. We'll take pictures. We might shoot you. One of the two. But you stay over there. I don't want you charging at me. And God says, and where he's going to go next takes us to an even greater degree. But God says, do you harness a rhino? Maybe. Wild ox. Something powerful. This isn't just a water buffalo, by the way. Although watch some videos about water buffalo going nuts, and you're going to see that they're more powerful than you think. Can you do that? Because I could. I take care of them. And God wraps it up in his first part this way. Job 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Can you, can you argue with me? You wanted your day in court. Here it is, Job. I showed up. It's not going to play out the way you thought. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Your turn, Job. Keep in mind, we are in chapter 40 of this book of arguments. Job has been arguing with friends and family since chapter 2. He has had no end of words, and then God says, your turn. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. God says, okay, Job, you wanted a back and forth with me. That's my first response. He also mentioned the lion. I didn't even go back to that one. I'm going to bring up the stars you mentioned, maybe a rhinoceros, maybe a unicorn, probably some kind of wild ox, and a lion. Your turn. And Job's response is this. I, I think I'm good. I don't, I don't need to talk. I, I, already, I think you heard me. I already, I already said a lot. I don't, I'm not so sure I want my day in court anymore. But I know this. 
I'm going to plead the fifth. I'm just, I, under lawyer's advice, over, under the consent of counsel, I'd prefer not to take the stand right now. I'm just going to listen. Thank you for showing up. I'm glad you came. If you would like to continue, I'm just going to stay seated. I think I'm done. He just says, I'll be quiet. I mentioned Cody before, that, that staff person. Cody um, knows his Bible well, and when he was in college group, he had reached the point where to remind himself, he would, if he had something to say, he would do this. He'd put his hand up and cover his mouth. It is a reminder for him to be quiet. I think that's what Job does minus the hand up. I'm just, I'm, mm -mm. I'll wait. God answers them in power. It's a beautiful moment. I don't think it's harsh. I think it's very loving and tender still, but it is firm and powerful. It reminds me of something C.S. Lewis said. This is a paraphrase, but God is not tame. God's not tame. But he's the lion tamer. And we need to always remember that. And by the way, also, he'd mentioned this too. He's also the ostrich protector. Put that one in your apologetics somewhere. Next time you're mad at God, just remember that one. Next time you're struggling with God's doing, remember that. There's an animal that I don't know if I'm supposed to be terrified of or I'm supposed to laugh at, and the answer probably is both. And God protects that thing because it's the goofiest thing on the planet or at least it's one of them. And God uses that in his response. I don't know, I've certainly never done this in the past. I don't know that I'll remember to do this in the future. But God, though he's not tame, he is the lion tamer, and feel free to work an ostrich into your sharing of the gospel and the omnipresence and omnipotence of God. But also this, God is tender, we know that from scripture. But we can't, in our understanding of God's tenderness, forget that he has no problem showing up in power, even in the midst of our pain. Again, going back to C.S. Lewis, that's why Lewis said, pre the later suffering that he wrote a book about, not pre-suffering, but pre that particular suffering. That's why Lewis would say, Pain is God's megaphone. This is a megaphone moment. It's not necessarily an angry moment, but it is a megaphone moment. Job, you called me to answer, and I am here because I love you, and I'm showing up in tenderness, but also power. You challenged me, and I don't shy away from a challenge, but are you ready for a powerful response? And again, Job's response is, I think I'm good, or at least I think it's a good time for me not to talk. But know this, God is not afraid of your challenge and your wrestling, but he is not afraid to engage in that wrestling either. He'll meet you on the mat. He'll meet you in court when you demand it. You might not be ready for the power that's coming, but he'll meet you, and he's not necessarily angry when he shows up in power. He's reminding you of the power that you're calling on. And he says, I got you. 
and I'm holding you tenderly in my hand, but you need to know the strength of that hand because you might have never seen it before. And if you did, you probably didn't notice how strong it was as it held you secure, firmly, but tenderly. Because we just saw the Almighty answer, and he answered in power and with challenge. But he's still the same tear-collecting God who is mindful of our most difficult moments, even when he never explains why. If you've read Job before, you notice this. He doesn't say, here's what happened, Job. He shows up and says, Job, here's me and all the power that comes with me that you have watching over you. Just understand it rightly. And you need to know, that's part one. God's not done yet. He's not done answering Job. He's not done in Job's life. That's chapter 42. And of course, he's never done with us either that way. When we are struggling with God and you think, God, I feel like you tapped out on me, God's response is, go read Job and you'll find out I never tap out on you like that. I never walk away from you. I'm still holding you in my powerful hand. Let's pray. Lord, you are so tender, the tear collector, and you are, may we never forget, so powerful. The God who watches over all of creation, including us, the God who has storehouses of the, the weather, and the God who knows our worst moment. The God who's willing to wrestle with us, but is also willing to win that battle every time. Lord, help us to rightly know your power. But Lord, help us also to understand, understandably know that your power is working for the blessing of your people, even in the midst of the problem of pain. That you watch over us and you protect us, even when we're convinced the world's fallen apart. We still enjoy your grace, your presence, and your power. Amen.